You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Well, I want to welcome all of our listeners to this episode of The Zeitgeist. We are recording on January 23rd. Um, that date uh, is important to note for reasons that may become uh, apparent. And uh, today with me is Dr. Liana Fix uh, from the Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome, Liana. Thank you so much. So, um, Liana Fix is a fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations. She is an expert in German and European foreign and security policy, transatlantic relations, Russia, Eastern Europe, um, many things uh, that are all pertinent uh, today. Um, and uh, Liana is also the author of a book called A New German Power, Germany's Role in European-Russia Policy. So um, we're really delighted to have you with us. And um, let's maybe start off um, with, if you don't mind, talking about an article that you have published in the current edition of Foreign Affairs magazine, um, which is titled Putin's Last Stand, The Promise and Peril of Russian Defeat, which uh, you have written um, with Michael Kimmage of Catholic University. Um, do you think Russia's defeat is inevitable? I do think it is the most likely outcome of this war. And there are different variants of Russia's defeat, and that's what we try to identify in this article. There can be a Russian defeat after escalation, a Russian defeat after negotiation, or a Russian defeat after regime change. And in all these scenarios, what we try to argue is that we will probably not see a golden age of stability after Russia's defeat, but that we should prepare ourselves for the positive sides of a Russian defeat, obviously for Ukraine and the West, but also for the potential negative implications in the region, for Russia itself, and also for global stability. Um, so we should prepare not only for Russia's defeat, but also at some point for Russia's return as a probably still revanchist imperial country. And I think that's an important jumping off point for the issues that have been so prominent in the news in the last uh, few days. We had at the end of last week uh, a, a meeting at the U.S. air base in Rammstein uh, in which there was a discussion about military assistance to Ukraine. And there has been a growing criticism of, of Germany for its reluctance to deliver or to approve the delivery by others of Leopard 2 tanks, German-made tanks, uh, to, to Ukraine. Uh, how much of that, in your view, the, the reluctance on Germany's part, is precisely because of these risks of, uh, of Russia uh, that Russia poses, including Russia's defeat? Yeah, so actually, I was very optimistic and very positive when the year started, because we had the announcement by Germany, France, and the United States that they would send light battle tanks for the first time to Ukraine. So that was a great political sign, because it demonstrated that the West is not looking for some kind of frozen line of contact in Ukraine, some kind of Minsk III agreement, 
um, uh, but that the West realizes there needs to be a Ukrainian offensive, or at least Ukraine needs to withstand a potential Russian offensive in spring. So it was a strong signal at the beginning of the year, also from Germany, which was accused in the past of not wanting Ukraine to win, but just trying to find some, well, middle negotiation ground with Russia. And then Rammstein happened. And the problem here was that for Berlin, it all just went too fast. They just agreed to the martyrs, and now suddenly they received this push and this pressure from the, especially from the European partners. Well, let's move on. Let's let's go for the leopards because Ukraine doesn't have the time to wait. I mean, spring is getting closer, and that was just too overwhelming for for German politics because it had to finally show what it means with Scholz's line: "We don't go it alone." He always said. We will not go it alone. We need to act in a coalition. And the result was that now the world knows the coalition is not a European coalition. The UK is not enough as a wingman for Germany. It needs to be the United States. But you're right to point out that uh, just a few weeks ago, there was an agreement on providing advanced infantry fighting vehicles uh, to Ukraine. And and so, you know, the, the optimistic take uh, would be that uh, this is really just a matter of time and coordination, not a fundamental substantive uh, disagreement. I would also add that uh, the German government from the chancellor on down has never ruled out um, the question of providing tanks or any other particular type uh, of weapon system. Um, it has instead really stuck to the, uh, the desire to, uh, to act in concert with its closest allies. But as you say, what this really means is Germany needs the United States to take qualitatively new steps toward um, the Ukraine uh, war uh, and the Russian invasion, uh, which again brings, uh, brings us back to, is this really just a question of internal coordination or is this excessive risk aversion on the part of Germany toward Russia? I think it's... Uh, Excessive risk aversion, I think, is what comes closest to describing what we see there. And there are different interpretations, um, because the problem is also that there's no clear explanation from the Chancellor. We, um, I mean, in, in, in past time, we all engaged in Kremlinology, finding out what the Kremlin and Putin thinks. At the moment, we all are trying to find out what Olaf Scholz thinks without <laughs> wanting to compare Olaf Scholz to, 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 to the Russian leader, obviously. Um, but that's a really difficult situation because if the argument goes that Germany needs some kind of additional reassurance by the United States, by sort of with the United States sending Abrams together with German Leopards, then that demonstrates a sort of security, in German insecurity perhaps a German panic and fear of Russia that leads Germany and Olaf Scholz to sort of get even closer to the United States out of a fear of Russian retaliation to say, well, we don't move one step without the US moving exactly the same step. And it's surprising out of a security perspective, because obviously there is Article 5, which already protects member states. 
But um, Scholz has said repeatedly in the past that his oath is to protect the German population. And that's something which is in his mind to calculate the risk and his risk calculation is different from the risk calculation of the UK, for instance, which has sent main battle tanks and was hoping that this would be enough for Germany to also move forward. So it's a huge disappointment for anyone who was hoping for European leadership role in this war. And so I think th that bring that brings us to an important aspect of the so-called revolution in Germany's foreign defense and security policy since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and and that's the this uh, famous word Zeitenwende, um, which the Chancellor has elaborated on um, in additional remarks, uh, including a speech uh, in Prague. Um, a, a few months ago, um, and that dwelt on the European aspect. And what I hear you saying, Liana, is that um, that that this European aspect of of Germany's strengthened security policy is still missing, um, perhaps because of an excessive or instinctive reliance on the United States in any security crisis. Is it also perhaps uh, a, f a factor that, uh, that Germany simply is, does not adequately appreciate the, the views and the urgency of its uh, Central and Eastern European partners in that regard? Yes, so what we've seen with Zeitenwende is the return of, of military power to Germany. So we see rearmament, we've seen um, hopefully at some point Germany meeting the 2% goal, but this is not the same as military leadership. And if we look, for instance, into the long article for foreign affairs that Olaf Scholz has published at the beginning of this year, that's exactly what he said, what Germany would do, not only return to military power, but also a military leadership role, a leadership ambition, and to act as a security guarantor in Europe. And if that's the ambition, Germany is very much falling short of that. And perhaps that's the greatest disappointment with Germany's Central and Eastern European neighbors. It's not that Germany's contributions for Ukraine are not sufficient or are sort of not 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 remarkable. The, the Germany is doing a lot when it comes to Ukraine support, but the way how it presents its contributions and the way how it refuses really kicking and screaming to assume any leadership role is just for Central and Eastern Europeans who ask themselves the question, well, who, who, who is going to defend us if something happens to us and who is going to defend to take on a leadership role if something happens to us? It's just a huge dis disappointment. And also for the United States, who has this huge burden of European security and of addressing China at the same time, it is a disappointment that it's basically left alone with the leadership in this war. feels a little bit like um, the 1990s um, when it took uh, American uh, action to galvanize um, a transatlantic uh, response to, to the wars uh, in the Balkans and, uh, and later um, uh, Serbia's um, uh, armed intervention in Kosovo. Um, so 
does this mean, Liana, that the uh, the much vaunted Zeitenwende is over before it's even reached um, one year of age, uh, or is this uh, are these what you might call growing pains? Well, looking at the reaction in the United States, I have the impression that in the past, the um, assessment of Zeitenwende was sort of the glass is half full or half empty, right? I mean, looking at different perspective, there was this kind of argument that you could make for both sides. And I have the impression that with this de- decision, um, really in the United States, it's very difficult in the future to make the case for Zeitenwende because now the glass is looks definitely half empty to everyone, although Germany has just agreed to send light tanks and probably will also at some point send Leopard. So actually the contributions are increasing, but the glass looks um, less less full. Um, and that's, that's pretty frustrating. And I think perhaps it's useful to think on to think about two different dimensions here. And they're always in history, international politics, there are always the two dimensions of structural factors and leaders here. And I think this episode in Rammstein boils down to a leader's problem. It boils down to a chancellor who is kind of stubborn, who doesn't want to be pushed, who wants to take time for his decisions, but it does not necessarily it's the same as sort of a structural problem that Zeitenwende will will never happen. I mean, now one can say Germany is not even managing to spend the hundred um, uh, billion that it promised properly. So there are obviously also structural reasons. But I do think this episode is really more of a leadership problem in terms of leadership personalities than it is a cause to say, well, Zeitenwende was just a Potemkin village and never really happened, and there was never an intention to make it happen. And I think there's perhaps a distinction. Um, there, there are different types of, of Zeitenwende, uh, you, you could argue. Uh, there is the recapitalization of the Bundeswehr um, represented by the 100 billion uh, defense fund. There is the spending commitment um, in parallel. Uh, all of these things can exist without political military leadership um, in Europe. So what's really in question, I think, is the, the degree to which that articulated goal of Germany as a leading, if not the leading, European uh, security uh, actor, uh, is that really um, a, uh, something that German leaders are ready to take steps and make sacrifices to accomplish? And I think, I think that's very true. And also, if we look at um, the other parties in this coalition and also the other parties in the German Bundestag, I do think that we see a new generation of leaders which are coming from the Green Party, but also the younger generation of the Liberal Party, who are much more open towards the idea of military power, surprisingly, because the Greens have been the pacifist party in in their history, uh, much more forceful when it comes to Russia and China. 
So looking at sort of the level of political discourse, we have the youngest Bundestag, the youngest German parliament that we had so far. So we have a lot of young members in the parliament who don't really remember the Cold War times, but were socialized in very different times at a time when Russia was already an authoritarian state. So this speaks for a slow and structural change in Germany and in German foreign policy. But we see how this episode about the leopards basically makes Germany's coalition government look completely confused to the outside world because you have voices who come out and who say convey completely different messages from the green ministers who say, well, we will not prevent other countries from sending leopards to Ukraine to the chancellor not saying anything about it. And I think that's a problem that the German government in this situation is not speaking with one voice but it's sort of playing party politics out in the open. Now, it has uh, not escaped uh, anyone's intention, or probably not listeners of this podcast, let me put it that way, that there's also been personnel change inside uh, the German cabinet. Uh, the defense minister, Christina Lambrecht, uh, resigned and was replaced just a few days ago by the uh, the former interior minister of Lower Saxony, Boris Pistorius, also from the Social Democratic Party. So he was in the awkward position of meeting with his counterpart, uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, and taking part in the Ramstein uh, coordination meeting uh, when his tenure in office could be counted in hours rather than days, uh, to say nothing of, of weeks, months, or years. So if we get to the end of January, a week or so from now, and agreement has been reached uh, among Germany and its closest partners uh, on a way forward on this uh, tank question. Um, does that mean that all of these um, concerns um, will have ebbed and that, uh, that this will be something that is a footnote in the history books um, half a year from now? Or do you think this says something um, uh, more stark about um, uh, the, the overall coalition dynamics between these three parties uh, that have never worked together on the national level before and the leadership style of the chancellor? Yes, yeah, so I think for the new German defense minister, this was the toughest first day on, on, on a new job that one can imagine. It's pretty much something. Um, he, he, he conveyed a strong appearance. I mean, he in, in what he could do, he did a good job. But the problem is that his room of maneuver, what he can do at the moment, is obviously very limited. The decisions are being taken in the chancellery, and obviously the chancellery hopes with the appointment of Boris Pistorius, who is known to be someone who is loyal, um, who is well regarded in the Social Democratic Party, to have someone who supports his positions and not someone who acts as an anti-pole to, to, to the chancellor's positions. But it would be important that he develops some kind of own profile because that's what the German army is waiting for. They're waiting for a leader who is um, representing them. And I think if we look at the calendar, it's not too far away until the Germ uh, until the Munich Security Conference, like our big transatlantic party in, in, in Munich coming up. 
And we will need some positive news until then, because otherwise this is going to be rather funeral than a party. It's, And I'm not going to say that this has changed anything in the strategic depth of the US-German relationship. Um, I think there's a lot of anger, but we are all still on the same page with support for Ukraine. But the perception of Germany really for the first time, I think, has taken such a hit that this will be lasting. And what it would need is some German effort to reverse this impression. And that would definitely be not to wait too long with the Leopard decision and to go even further and to take further steps, which convince everyone that Zeitenwende is, is not yet over. Of course, dramatic steps, um, those are things we have seen, um, and uh, not least from Chancellor Schultz just a few days after the Russian invasion um, in announcing uh, a dramatic turnaround in, uh, in German policy and indeed in positions that his own party had held up until um, uh, the start uh, of that war. Um, maybe to th look at this from a, to frame the question slightly differently, if you were sitting in Moscow Liana, and you had to identify your priorities um, in, in terms of actions you would like to avoid um, or prevent the, the West from taking, um, would stopping the provision of main battle tanks to Ukraine be at the top of that list? Or is it about fracturing the, the creating dissension and uh, recriminations within the Western alliance or something else entirely? Well, I think by now Moscow must be well aware of, of the limits of the influence it has on European and US allies. So uh, the Russian president completely overestimated his influence and his power over Europeans and also his influence and power over Germany at the beginning of this war. And by now he must have realized that this is not what he expected to happen in Europe. Um, so there's probably no hope to prevent any arms deliveries, which will be coming and are coming. But what you just said about breaking the alliance, that's something which Moscow is really, really dedicated to. And we see this in other countries. We see this in, in, in Moscow's efforts in, in Hungary, in Serbia. Um, at the same time, I would say that this sort of anger or tensions in the, in the transatlantic alliance right now that we have about leopards, that this is not yet something where I would be too concerned about. I mean, it's hiccup, it's annoying, everyone is sort of ventilating frustration, but it's not something which is any kind of strategic divide. I mean, we are talking about not about relieving sanctions on Russia. We are talking about sending main battle tanks to Ukraine. So it's really about discussions about going then to the towards the next step, not discussions about staying the course or sort of uh, grade, downgrading our efforts. Um, so I wouldn't be too concerned about what Moscow thinks um, right now. It's really uh, it's really for German policymakers something to think about what their perception with the European allies is, because the greatest rift that I see right now is the German-Polish rift. And although we had this great celebration of German and French relations in the Elysee, 60 years um, of, of German-French uh, friendship, um, the German-French relation is also not as strong as it has been in the past. So my concern is rather 
that Europe needs to get closer together and enjoys U.S. leadership as a means to um, uh, to fight some inner European fights, which are pretty much unnecessary. Well, I think that opens up a new chapter, and we'll have to save that uh, new chapter for uh, for a future discussion. Um, but I, I want to thank you, uh, Liana, for taking time to be with us today and for helping shed some light on the thinking uh, uh, from a German perspective uh, on the crucial issues of European security, on the partnerships that are most important uh, to in pursuing it, um, and on the uh, the things that we have to uh, to look uh, to look forward to, uh, in particular, um, the the nature of the transatlantic uh, bond. Uh, the close partnership between Germany and the United States, and what that will mean for uh, for the concerted action uh, of European allies. So thanks very much for being with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And we'll look forward to having all of you listeners with us again on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.